Welcome back to React Roundup. It's a panelist show today where we're going to talk about is working at a large or small company better for your career? With me today is TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everyone. All right. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I'm going to start off with saying where I've worked and when you guys kind of fill in what you have done so that we can kind of give us some background. So I currently work at a seed stage startup, which is means that we haven't yet gotten our Series A or Series B or Series C funding. So it's very small. There's about seven people in it. And it's a productivity startup called Centered App. And we do kind of a a flow type system so to get you into the flow productivity. So it's pretty cool stuff. And before that, I was working at Nike and Walmart. So I've kind of done both the small company and big company thing just recently. Yeah, and I can go next. So this is TJ and I, I've sort of ran all stages of this as well. So I started off in big insurance, Fortune 500 uh, insurance companies, big stuff. Uh, from there, I worked for a hosting company, Liquid Web, that was sort of, I guess, like medium-sized. So that was like three, 400 people when I was working there. Then I went to work for Progress, which is a fairly large company as well. And then currently, I work with Paige at Blues Wireless and... We are a startup of 20-some people. So I've got experience from sort of both large and small and somewhere in between. And I have a similar set of experience, but it's not all in web development, which is a little bit unique. Because I've only I've been in web development now for about five years. My first web job was with Home Depot. So the largest of large enterprise companies. And now, as TJ mentioned, we are at the smallest of the small startups with 20... I think we had our 24th or 25th employee just joined recently. But prior to that, for about five years, I worked in various marketing agencies. And we I worked for medium-sized ones of a few hundred people. Uh, one was acquired and became part of a giant publicist marketing group. And then I went to a startup of about 40, 40 people when I was there. So everything from very large to very small and back again. And it, all of them have definite benefits and definite drawbacks. And it just depends, I guess, what you're looking for or what you place more value on as to which ones you might be happier with. And of course, what stage of your career you're in too. If you're just starting out, Maybe a startup where you get to touch everything is really exciting to you or it's terrifying because you don't know what you're doing and want other developers and people to kind of mentor and help guide you. So that's a kind of a probably a good place to get started is what 
what benefits are there or what pros and cons to the various sizes and stages of companies? <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there's a huge advantage in kind of a work-life balance in the larger companies that I've seen. If you are in middle of midway through your career, or maybe you're looking to spend more time with working on a family, I think a big company is probably a better choice. You know, usually you have larger teams and a little bit longer schedules so that you can kind of predict more and, and be like, oh, okay, I'm actually going to take a vacation this year. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> Whereas the seed stage startup, you know, you don't really have an idea kind of almost day to day sometimes what you're going to be working on or what the intensity level is going to be. So it can be a lot more challenging in terms of that. Yeah, big companies in general are far more predictable. There's There's more... There's more just process behind everything, which can be interpreted as both a good or a bad thing. Like to bring Jack's example up, like for the vacation thing, oftentimes it can be a good thing because there's very little that would be totally unexpected. You, you, nothing's going to like throw you off and suddenly make you, chances are like lose some time out of the blue. Um, things are far more structured that way. But at the same time, you could also view that as a negative because sometimes all that process can get in your way when you're trying to do something. I know all of us could tell stories of like absurd things that happen at large companies that stop you from accomplishing very trivial things. Whereas in small companies, chances are, at, at least uh, there, there are always degrees of this, but chances are you have a little bit more freedom to do what you think is best accomplish what you think needs to get accomplished with less getting in your way. But again, just to the constant thing of trade-offs, because that does make you more responsible for things. There's less of a crutch for you to, to fall back on. If you can't get something done, you might have to do something that you don't want to do, but there's no one else to do it at a small company. So there's it, it's tricky. Yeah. One thing that I appreciated coming out of my boot camp because I went to a coding boot camp for four months and then transitioned into web development was I I wanted to go to a a medium or larger sized company because I wanted other developers around me who were better than me and more skilled and more knowledgeable and all those things that I could learn from because if boot camp taught me one thing it was that there was so much to to learn that I just didn't know it was how much more there was after this kind of initial crash course that I had gotten. So being able to go to a company the size of Home Depot, for instance, was fantastic because suddenly I was on a team of eight plus other developers from staff level all the way down to software engineering level and everything in between, people who'd done it for decades, people who'd done, done it for a few years people who had computer science degrees, people who didn't. And having all of that around me to, to learn from and being part of a team where we were responsible from everything, full stack, our back-end services, our front-end services, our build pipeline, doing testing, doing code, code quality scans, setting up our, our GitHub repos and maintaining those and making sure that they were up to standards, all of that stuff was fantastic because I got to, to touch and learn about all these different things. But I was, it was also very structured, like you say, in that this was our, our project, this was our lane, this was what we were responsible for. And then if you needed something done, 
anywhere else, you had to talk to another team or you had to submit a form or you had to fill out X, Y, and Z pieces of red tape to get it done. And sometimes it was it was great because we could just something would come to us and we could say, we're not responsible for that. Go talk to this other team or stuff would come to us and we would be either responsible for it or we'd have to figure it out. Or it would be very painful, like you say, to get it done. What's what should have been trivial if somebody had had the level of clearance that was required to make some, what seemed like a small change. So a lot of benefits to it, especially early in your career, because you can just go tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, can you look at this code with me or help me figure out what this is doing or how to, to do it. But at the same time, a lot of processes and potentially a lot of time in between things getting done shouldn't really take that long if, if you knew, if you were a smaller company, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but it's funny because that's similar to how I got my start with big insurance. It's just like a junior developer role. And I think another advantage of that is these larger companies, they're more likely to have like established training procedures and like the budgets to do that sort of thing. Whereas your small startup, you know, they don't have the money to throw around or the time to do that sort of thing. But a larger company can have a whole training department that at least the insurance company I worked for did. They had people that that was their job was to train other people and programs to help you get ramped up and get more involved. And it was more of a gradual on-ramping that I definitely appreciated at the time. And I, I only have good things to say about going through that process and that company because it did help me get up and running and you know get my career jump-started. All right. I don't disagree with any of that, but I do feel like we're kind of short shrifting the whole startup experience here because there is a coolness to being able to say, you know, hey, I watched this really great YouTube video on Firestore or whatever it is, you know, and and it's filling a void in our ecosystem. And I'm we're just going to go in there and bring it in and get it done. And we're going to do it today. And you only do that kind of thing at a startup. I got to say, if if, if working at big companies, if you want to get a new technology, and like, let's say that they're doing traditional rest, and you really are a huge fan of GraphQL, you have to go and drive that thing daily, every day, working with engineering management, product management, project management. These are big ships and they are crazy hard to steer. And so Mm -hmm. when folks are saying, oh, it's really hard to get something done. Yeah, that's politics and it's everything else and it's schedules and it's it's all that. So there are some advantages to that, that small company vibe of you can kind of just, you know, get it done, which is, is a really nice feeling sometimes. Absolutely. If you are ready to take ownership of stuff, you can kill it at a small company. You just have to be, I guess, the biggest thing, a, a big shift for me was I I was used to going through a lot of communication channels before getting minimal access to whatever it was that we needed at Home Depot from, you know, from another team or an API endpoint or whatever. And I had learned pretty early on that suggesting new technologies, new potential, Anything that was going to cost money probably was never going to happen. They decided at a much higher level than my team or my manager or even my department what technologies we were using, what vendors we had access to for anything, and good luck 
getting something from the grassroots started that you heard about that you thought would be really useful to the team. That was just, that was going to die on the vine. But in, in startups, that is absolutely the case. It's like, if you see something and you have an idea of a way to make it better, you can just throw it out there and probably start running with it that same day if you have the time and the, and the energy to do so, which is awesome. It feels so good to knock stuff out that quickly. And it's a great way to learn. But then you have to maintain it. <laughs> that is <laughs> and true. That's on you. Exactly. That is true. You can you know, really, You can get into a mess of spaghetti and a lot of vendor charges really quickly if you're not keeping up with it. But... At the same time, you can also, you could also really improve everything in a very short amount of time if, if you make the right decisions and kind of evaluate your options. <laughs> so fun story. Back in my big insurance days, one of those like political battles that I fought or tried to spearhead was getting Chrome installed on everybody's PCs. Because... <laughs> uh, this was back when Chrome was was pretty new and we were all on lockdown Windows setups, right? So you couldn't, you if you had no admin access, you can't, you couldn't install a program. And so Chrome came out and I was like, well, people are starting to use this thing, right? Like we should have it. It has good developer tools. This could really benefit us. And the executives, like, like I had to schedule meetings with executives to try to get this to happen. Because they were saying, well, our apps don't support Chrome. Why do you need this? And like just the absurdity of that entire process, right? Like, especially given the benefit of hindsight and looking back at this is just, it gets frustrating at a certain point. Like if, if you're the type of person that wants total control over what you're doing and want to be able to try and experiment with things, that <laughs> those sorts of experiences, I mean, things like that are eventually why I left that company is because that it just gets ridiculous, right? At a certain point, you just can't take that sort of thing anymore. Yeah, I I think the there's a bias here. You know, when you think about like a company culture, and how it can go wrong, I think in the in the small startup case, the going wrong tends to err towards workaholism, right? It's just we, the yeah, more we just yeah. do we just gotta go, 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 go kind of thing. And it's just mm -hmm. it, you're it's crazy. Uh, whereas in the big companies, when they go bad in terms of culture, they kind of bias towards just politics, just endless politics, endless meetings that never resolved anything. And it's just kind of soul crushing and grinding. And then, so I guess that's, that is a decision point there is like, Hey, if things go wrong, which direction do I want them to go wrong in? Is it, mm -hmm. is it overworking myself or is it just kind of being frustrated to the point where I'm just like, ah, peace out. I don't need this stuff anymore. And I think though, like that, those might just be good red flags to look for if you're like interviewing or evaluating a job, right? Like if you are interviewing, if you're looking into a startup, those are the sort of questions you want to ask, right? Like how many hours am I expected to work? Is overtime going to be a thing here? Is it expected? Like, cause I think a startup, you could probably expect to do a bit more work, but you know, unless, unless you're really the sort of person that wants to throw yourself head first into this stuff, like, I would definitely consider it a red flag if they told me, you know, you're expected to work 50, 60 hours a week or to mm -hmm. do weekend work. And so that's the sort of thing I would look for. And on the flip side, like with big companies, I, I mean, you would want to ask questions about how much authority do developers have? How much are they involved in the decision-making processes? You know, how much are, do they get a say in what technologies are used? Because I've I've been involved 
even though those are like stereotypical things about these companies, there are certainly pockets of big companies that operate more like a startup, right? And there are startups that are a little bit more stable and secure. So those are the sort of things, I guess, to to look for as you're exploring your options. And a, another good thing to consider is what kind of experience are you looking to gain? Like, do you want to go super deep into one particular either area of expertise or one product? Like that's because that's typically what you're going to have on an, the enterprise level is you're going to have one product that you are responsible for. And it's but it's going to be a complex product more more likely than not. So you're going to be handling the databases, you're going to be handling the back ends, the front ends, and you're going to be doing some probably some pretty complex stuff with it. But if you are if you like having a variety of things to work on, then maybe a startup is a better choice for that because you'll probably be touching one website one day and then you'll be looking at some kind of an SEO tool the next day and then you'll be trying to get analytics a third day and figuring out how to connect all these different pieces of the the, the company into p- things that make sense. So if you get a little burned out on one piece, you can probably go pick up a bug somewhere else and, <laughs> and get kind of a refresher and a little respite from it and and then you know, go back to it in a few days time. So it's kind of like breadth versus depth. And there's small companies, startups still are doing very complex things as well, but there's still going to be probably a better chance of you getting more experience and more different things than there would be on a larger product team in a, a big organization. And there's definitely gradients. I mean, when you think about a startup, right, you've got your your seed round startup, and that's basically pre-product market fit, meaning that they still don't really know what they're doing. And that's can be wild. Everything's <laughs> changing all the time versus like a C, like a series A or a series B or series C, where the company knows what it's doing. Now it's just a question of like scaling it up and, and getting to be larger. And there's a bit more of a, of a comfort zone in there. And then on the big company side, there's, there's tech companies like Google and Facebook. And these are companies that are, have kind of a core in engineering, like a heart in engineering. And then you've got your sort of brick and mortar startups, like your Home Depot, your Walmart, your Nike, where they're, they're companies that culturally are really about like having a store. And you're like the weird tech folks coming in saying, well, hey, we can sell this stuff online, you know? So (laughs) there's definitely, when you talk about like the things to look out for in the interview and questions like that, you got to think about those, like, where is this company? What's its background? And and is that going to work within my career and where I want to take my career? Yeah. When I worked in big insurance, we had to wear a shirt and tie into the office every day because... It was an insurance company, right? Mm-hmm. The the whole IT aspect of it was just one component of it. And it was just a company policy. You wear shirt and tie. So I got dressed up every day. I was prepared every <laughs> uh every like wedding and events, like I was ready to go. Was, <laughs> like, man, nice. I got a full I got a full wardrobe ready for this. <laughs> Business casual, ready for anything. <laughs> yeah. I got a, a smock at Walmart, a full-on <laughs> smock. Yeah. And I actually knew the cheer too. Oh yeah, yeah. I had. I, I, I was had a, a principal engineer. I wasn't anywhere near it. I didn't. You know, I would go yeah. into the store. I'm like, hey, I work here. I guess Home Depot apron, the whole nine mm-hmm. yards. But before, right before I got there and got hired, everybody, even 
people who worked in our corporate offices were required, I think, to do maybe three or four store days a year where they would go in and be on the front lines helping customers and dealing with all the stuff that store employees do on a daily basis. And once I was hired, they had actually made that, they had gotten rid of that as a requirement. So you did your one store day when you first started and then pretty much never again because they wanted you working on whatever it was that you were actually hired to do. But I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I think a lot of people gained a lot more empathy for the amount of stuff that customer service or customer facing people put up with on a daily basis. And especially when it's something like Home Depot hardware where people come in and something is broken off of their window, but they have no idea what it's called. You have no idea what it's called. You've never even seen this piece before. And you're expected to try and help them find it in the store and replace it. So it was a, I think it's a great wake up call for people who have not worked in customers facing jobs before, just how difficult that can be and how tiring it can be. But at the same time, I also very much understand we're paying you a lot more, most likely than we're paying the store employees. So do your job, whatever it was we actually hired you to do. I, I do think like it, I, I don't know if this is strictly speaking true, but at larger companies, you do feel a little bit more removed from whatever it is the company is doing. You feel a bit more like a cog in a giant system. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I have to imagine that Home Depot program was trying to help, you know, rectify that or bring people closer to it. To it. Cause when I worked in commercial automobile insurance, like I never met anybody that was actually insurance agent or an actual like policyholder. So it was very, I was very far removed. It felt very just esoteric, random stuff I was doing. And it does give you like a little must motivation. It, it does help when you really feel like you are doing something important or worthwhile or have a connection to whatever the, it is, the end product or service that it is you're producing. Yeah, I, that's a big deal. I mean, for me, the reason that I got into software or writing code when I was a kid was I wanted to make games for my friends. And, and so it's been that virtuous cycle of always wanting to put stuff in front of people that they're like, ooh, that's neat, you know, and get that little buzz of like, wow, that I made that and people like it, you know. But if you're working in insurance, you know, maybe that's not Fintech. a thing that... Right. <laughs> you know, wow, I made yeah. rich people a lot richer. Right. You know, woo. I you optimized know. that algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> woo. Yeah. I got an additional 0.0001%. Yes. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I want, maybe I want something in my life where I want to give people something, you know, new. And I, I, at Nike, I did this feature where, you know, we would recommend shoes based on the shoes that you'd already bought and that sort of stuff. And, and, being a person as a runner with flat feet, that actually was something cool to me because like, that's a better kind of experience than you might get in a store where, you know, you talk to somebody and you want to get, you know, get some advice, you know, here's an algorithm saying, Hey, you know, you bought, you know, these kind of motion control shoes, whatever. And I felt like, Oh, I had an impact in somebody's life today. And that's a good thing. That's a nice way to wake up in the morning and feel like, ah, you know, I'm changing the world. There's a little bit today. Yeah, that that user feedback that you get, if you get it, if you're lucky enough to to be able to see some of what people say is is awesome. Like the team that I worked for within Home Depot, we were an internal team and our clients were actually Home Depot employees as well. So from time to time, they they had to use our tool to do their jobs and we would get feedback 
both negative and positive. But some of the times when we'd get positive feedback, people would say things like we'd saved them hours out of their week with with stuff that we had made and, and done, which was so rewarding. Um, and that's the kind of thing exactly that really motivates you. It's like you might not see as you're building something the benefit that it, or the impact that it's going to have on somebody else's job. But hearing things like we'd save them hours of work a week was awesome. And that's that's something that kind of was attractive to me when I was starting to interview at Blues, where I work now, was seeing the product that they're making and hearing how it could improve so much was really enticing. You know, it it's it's a product that makes it easy to have an internet of things object that doesn't necessarily have access to Wi-Fi. Uh, it, it gives it that cellular connection so that it can take the data from the sensors that it's got and send it up to a cloud really easily. And when you start to think about all the potential use cases for that and how many people or how many products it could positively impact, that's really, really cool to think about all the the things that it could help make better and make easier. And that's something that I wanted to be part of. Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website, which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit Raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's Raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. Yeah, and I think like that sort of thing doesn't necessarily have to be a small company, big company thing. I think it's probably easier to be more involved in a smaller company. But I mean, I've also had experiences when I worked at Progress and we sold software, but I very rarely got to see any of the people using it. So I used to like going to events like JavaScript events, software events, because sometimes people would come up to we'd have like booths or just see them and people would say, hey, I use your stuff or I've read your blog post. And it's it's a, an amazing like just jolt you get because lots of times when you do stuff like that, you put work out into the ether and unless somebody tells you, you just kind of assumed, well, it's out there and who knows if anybody's going to see this or do anything with it. Uh, so yeah. just getting that like re <laughs> that reassurance that your work actually is being used you have a mm -hmm. purpose in in life at least for this so <laughs> yeah you can feel like you're screaming into the void sometimes when you're writing content and nobody comments or shares or just even yeah. likes it <laughs> oh, yeah exactly I felt that before yeah <laughs> well so that actually brings up an interesting point which is I think it's undervalued that engineers need to market themselves. It's a lot easier to get a job when the company's coming after you as opposed to you going and, and wanting to work at a company, right? So that oh, yeah. there's a great incentive that's going a different way. And to get there, right, you got to build a name for yourself. And that is 
in some senses, a risk at a big company because big companies are going to have, you know, closed source systems. And unless you're going to get on an open source project that is well, well supported inside of a big company, lots of com- big companies start OSS and then just let it die <laughs> in, in the search for, you know, profit, which is, of course, important. But, you know, that kind of thing you want, you're going to be able to build up some some blog posts some content around your resume. I think maybe a little bit more at the tech company or at the like smaller, medium sized company that's kind of doing some innovative work and wants to put something out in open source, maybe get a little buzz, better for recruiting. And I think there's gonna be more opportunities for, well, sorry, but like selfless, self-promotion at like, uh, at, and in some of those companies. And that's the thing to keep an eye out for because you do have to promote yourself. You do. And that was something that I got that another a senior developer told me pretty early on in my career. Maybe I'd been working for about a year, year and a half. And he made the comment that I really, if I wanted to kind of show my cred, especially because I didn't have a computer science background or degree, I was going to need to, or it would really benefit me to start writing about what I was learning at work. And even though I worked on an internal tool, I found plenty of opportunities to take what I had learned and change it into something that I didn't use our internal source code for. You know, I could make a much smaller example that I would put into my own GitHub repo and then put out in the community that was free of all the Home Depot specific IP. Or I would just take a concept that I had learned about and create some small much simplified version of it, or even even stuff that I had built inside projects. That was a great one that I would be able to use because they were it was my own code. And I would, you know, I would refer back to stuff that we had done at work to figure out how to make it work for my side project, but it was all written by me and my own stuff. But that was a huge, huge thing, I think, in helping me get further in my career because it was something that I could point to internally when somebody would have a question, I'd be like, Oh, I wrote a blog post about that. And so, you know, people on my team could benefit from it. My managers could see that I was doing it. It, it helped kind of solidify. Yes. I, I do know what I'm talking about and I have at least learned enough to be able to write and teach somebody else about it. But it also was an outside signal to people outside of the company that I was doing good things and giving back to the community in this way and making my way. And I am I know that because of that kind of stuff, I started getting opportunities. Like a couple of software as a service companies asked me after I'd been publishing for probably a couple of years just on my own, if I'd like to write for their publications. And they paid me to do it. And then I was invited on to one of the podcasts here because I'd written an article for Log Rocket. And suddenly I was on JavaScript Jabber, which is a, a sister podcast of ours talking about it. And then I was invited to React Roundup because I'd done a conference talk on responsive design and React. And that had been picked up by one of the newsletter publications. So that kind of stuff, not only does it build your credibility and give you a platform and which a lot of other developers are not doing. So it's a huge visibility booster there, but it also can potentially lead to 
paid speaking engagements, paid writing engagements, new jobs, because somebody saw that you did X, Y, and Z. And they're like, I need somebody here to do X, Y, and Z also. It's, it's ridiculous how if you're consistently doing stuff like that, you can turn it into something much bigger than what it started out as. Yeah. And I feel like, because I had a similar journey in terms of working on my own to get my name out from outside of a big company. And the thing is, you do have to jump through some hoops because I had to do some similar things. Like you're very careful to make sure you're not using any code that was originally there. Um, you almost like feel like awkward. You're, you're for sure doing all of this on your free time, not as yeah. part of your work time. Mm-mm. And I feel like in a startup, there's because there's less bureaucracy, you have more ability to get your name out for sure, because you have more freedom to work on stuff you're interested in and therefore more willing to write about. Small companies in general aren't going to care. Like, you know, blues might care if you take like an entire section of code you've been working on for a long time and throw it out there. But if you're just referencing something you did, it's like, oh, that's like good PR, probably like putting the name out there. It's it's not a big deal. There's There's less concern. So I feel like you definitely do have more freedom at a smaller company to to try to to make a name for yourself than you do inside of like a giant organization. Yeah, and I think Paige, you put a, like a, a great recipe there for you know, just starting out and getting into it. You know, hey, I ran into this little thing. I'm going to go and, you know, do a quick dev two on how to f- fix this one particular issue. And you'll end up on a bunch of Google searches because other people will get stuck on it and be like, oh, yeah, you know, that guy's, you know, he's got a good, uh, you know, recipe for how to get around that. And then it kind of builds on it and you get more and more exposure and, and that and that's great. Yeah. So yeah, a really good recipe there to get into the, uh, the, the world of self-marketing. Yeah. I mean, I just have a note on my phone. It's the most basic thing ever of stuff that I have figured out how to do either through work or through side projects. And when I come across something else that I think would be interesting or that I think other people would like to see how I did it, I'll just write it down as a note to myself. And then when I'm when I have time and when I'm looking for something to write about, I'll just reference back to that and pick one of the topics that still sounds good. And it's a great jumping off point because I know a lot of people struggle with, well, what am I going to write about? Well, what are you doing all day? You're probably solving interesting problems. So just kind of try and keep a, a reminder to yourself of something interesting that you solved. You know, probably somebody right about else what you know. Gonna, they'll run up against it too. You're probably not the only person who will need this particular thing. Yeah. And honestly, if you're not solving interesting (laughs) problems, then it might be time (laughs) to consider, right? Like there's, it's a great, it's a higher, you know, there's a good time to be a software developer. That's what I'm, uh, what I'm getting at. There are opportunities out there. So interesting problems don't have to be, you know, the world's most inventive startup. Like you're at the next Airbnb and Uber you can have interesting problems to solve in all sorts of markets. Like there were certainly interesting insurance problems. I'm sure there were interesting Home Depot problems, Nike problems as as well. Because those types of companies have like, there's something to be said about solving something at those sorts of scales as well. Like you really do have the potential to touch a lot of people um, to make a difference. Like it's, it is funny because bigger companies also tend to have more ceremony and process, but that's somewhat for a reason. Like sometimes you, you get to deal with some interesting problems of hitting sometimes huge user bases and Mm -hmm. large data sets that you're going to have trouble finding at a startup. So sometimes you can find some unique and interesting problems to solve at big companies also. 
Oh, absolutely. One of the ones that springs to mind immediately that was pretty new when I left or was had been solved recently was we had some product data that was uh, 250,000 potential rows in an Excel spreadsheet that we either needed to upload and ingest into our system or make downloadable for the user. So yeah, those were nightmare things to solve. But our users lived and died by these Excel spreadsheets. So it wasn't even a question of if we could make this work. It was more, how do we make this work? Because it needs to work. It was just... So yeah, those are ridiculous problems. But because it was a larger company and has been around for 40 years, you couldn't just say, we're not going to support this anymore because the users would mutiny and come with us, come at us with pitchforks. So yeah, there were definitely lots of weird, interesting problems that had to be solved. But at the same time, these are the same kind of problems that I know other companies of large scale and maybe older are also struggling with. Not everybody can start out as Google and just be all information systems data from the get-go. There's lots and lots of brick-and-mortar stores that are struggling with legacy systems and old processes that they can't just shut down. They have to revamp them and make them bring them into the 21st century, but also support the older way of doing stuff. Well, one thing that I wanted to bring up that I I don't think we've really talked about is the various sorts of roles that you can have at different companies. Like mm, a, yeah. a large store or a large company like Home Depot, because of what they do, they're not going to have things like developer relations that they mm. just don't need it because they're selling hammers and they're selling chainsaws <laughs> and they're selling nails. But if you want to be maybe a site reliability engineer, they definitely have a team that is all about that, making sure that the infrastructure underneath all these applications is stable and sound and scaling and doing everything that it needs to. But somewhere like Blues, developer relations is a huge part of our culture because we want developers to really like using our products and to think of us when they're looking at their next IoT initiative and evaluating the options that are out there. So it also really depends like where where do you want your career to go? Do you want to, to specialize in a large company where you can be a real subject matter expert in a particular area or field? Or do you want to be out in front of the public because that might make it more sense to be at a smaller company trying to get help get the company's name out at the same time as you're making a name for yourself at that company. So it's there's a lot of different things to consider based on where you want to go next, I guess. Yeah, I'm just thinking like at Progress, we had an SEO team with like a handful of people that just specialized in that. And I'm thinking like the smaller companies I've worked for at Blues, like there, there is no SEO team. There's no SEO person. Like it's, it's just SEO is going to be what it is, right? Like, so I think at bigger roles, just because there's there's more people, there's naturally going to be more specialization. Uh, I, I mean, I've worked at bigger companies that had like people that their entire job was specializing in one database. They were just the database mm-hmm. person for that technology, they knew it in and out. And th- that database was important enough to the company to hire someone specifically for that. So if that's your thing, like if you have a niche that you love, that's your life's passion, uh, you probably can find a role for it at a larger company, or at least you're probably more likely to. I've always been impressed by that. It was a, a guy at a company I was working at who was the MySQL guy. 
just straight yeah. up. Like that is what he knew. 100%. He knew every single nook and cranny of yeah. my sequel and down to like the dot, the triple dot version, the patch releases. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're like, well, what happens when, if my sequel isn't around anymore? I mean, not that it won't, I'm not saying it won't be, I'm just like putting it out there. Like think about it as a career longevity thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's always going to be. And it's like, wow, that is an impressive amount of dedication to a very, very focused piece of it. But then again, you know, you do that. And, and if, if that's your gig, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you probably get paid some decent money for that. Oh yeah. yeah. And if you, if you do the work, as you said earlier, to like build a pro public profile around it, if you need a MySQL specialist, because, you know, some big company somewhere is going to hit some MySQL errors over and over again and do a Google search to look for someone, <laughs> right? And there you'll be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a friend, a coworker at my old job, and he would tell me about a previous company he'd worked for and they had the COBOL guy. And the COBOL guy only came in like two weeks out of the year to maintain their mission-critical COBOL system. But he got paid big bucks because he was one of the few who still knows COBOL. And like I said, only had to work a minuscule amount of time. So if you want to be, if you want to go into one of those archaic languages that are still (laughs) powering so much of our industry, it's probably not a bad idea. But if you like being on the newer side of the technology, which will give you a lot more job options, probably. I mean, he had job security forever because this this system needed to exist and needed to be maintained. But you probably want to have a more flexible, more up-to-date skill set if you plan on <laughs> being in this industry for another 20, 30 years. But yeah, there's there's definitely a place for those people, for sure. <laughs> And that's an interesting point, right? People seem to think about, well, when they look at one of these jobs as maybe an eight to five job. And I really don't think that technology is an eight to five job. You have to go after hours and train yourself and keep up with the new technologies. It's There's just more to it than that. And it, it's we get paid a lot of money and there's a good reason that we get paid a lot of money. And it, it's because it, not necessarily just overworking, but like you have to, make sure that you are also driving your own technology and your own career. And that's going to, that's going to push beyond that eight to five boundary. Yeah. It sort of depends on what you want, right? Like there are certainly people that I have friends that are working in big insurance still, and are still doing the same nine to five job. And there's something to be said of just finding a comfortable place that something that you enjoy doing because there are certainly roles that you can keep doing without having to to do the grind and you might not get as far into your career, but it's just what you're comfortable doing. So it's, it's about finding what you want to accomplish and then, you know, evaluating your options and trying to figure out how to get there. I definitely say that those jobs exist in the, the larger companies. Yeah. Like yeah the smaller exactly. companies, the, <laughs> it's so almost much. expected that you have, you're a, you're passionate about technology and always learning and that sort of stuff. I remember when I was working at Ning, which is a social network company, and Steve Jobs is still around. I mean, the entire company would shut down for watching that keynote because we were all just glued about what was going to come out of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, you know, this <laughs> year. <laughs> and and you go into bigger companies and they're like, well, you know, it's Apple release day. What are we doing? They're like, what? <laughs> Nothing. We're, it's another day at the office, dude. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Let's talk about picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Anybody got one? Yeah, I can go first. So I'm going to pick a app for the Mac called Rocket. And it's an app that lets you drop an emoji in any application. You essentially hit a colon. You have to give your Mac like full accessibility access to this app, but you just type a colon in any application, anywhere where you can type, and it brings up a little like system-wide emoji picker. And I, I really enjoyed using it. I remembered it because I, I got a new Mac for the new job and I went to type colon in something and my emoji picker didn't come up. And I was like, oh man, I didn't realize how reliant I'd become on this thing. But it, it's also smart enough to, you can filter out certain apps. So like I, Slack is essentially blacklisted because Slack already has an emoji picker, right? So it doesn't like, you don't get two emoji pickers conflicting with each other and so you can sort of configure that. But for lots of times, if you're just like in a random text box in Chrome, sometimes it's nice to be able to type an emoji and just have it work. So I found it's a pretty nice little app for doing that. So that's my pick. That's awesome. Nice. Very cool. Those are fun. <laughs> so my pick for this week is going to continue on the IoT train that I have been on as of late. This one is one that actually I posted to Twitter last week, and it got a lot more engagement than I was expecting. And it's called the... Raspberry Pi Beginner's Guide. And it's a kid, a, yeah, it's a kid's book. It's built for kids to get started with their first Raspberry Pi and kind of get into programming. And it's fantastic. It is 252 color pages with pictures and code blocks and all kinds of good tips for people who don't know anything about Raspberry Pis but are looking to learn. And even though it is aimed at kids, um, I found it really useful and helpful. And apparently the rest of Twitter agreed with me because there were plenty of people who were writing about how they had used it, how they and their kids had used it, how no shame in buying a book that's aimed at kids to get you started. So I would highly recommend it if you are looking to get into that kind of industry or or start tinkering around with this because it's very helpful it's cleared up a lot of stuff that I just didn't know I didn't know about Raspberry Pis and how to kind of begin the IoT learning. So it, it's it's a good read. <laughs> so when are we going to get to see some of your IoT creations? Well, as soon as I finish the book, and I have a whole bunch of sensors that I have ordered from a company called The Seed with three E's. They make all sorts of sensors for Pies and Arduinos and all those little microcontrollers and microprocessors, but they are, I think their factory is in China. So I'm waiting on the international shipping to oh, yeah. get done. It's taking a little bit longer than something like Amazon, <laughs> but soon. I feel like we need more books like that for adults. I, yes. I don't know if any of you remember... I don't think these are a thing anymore, but the, I think it was Head Start. Oh, yes. yeah. Or Head Start like, great. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they were just fantastically written because they would have just like cartoons all over the place. And also, oh, they was were it just, Head First? I thought it was head, maybe Head First. Was it Head First? Yeah. I, I can't I, remember. I so. I was yeah, but I had a lot of yeah, had the cartoons and that was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what happened to them, but those books were great. And sometimes they would have those books on pretty advanced topics. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I remember learning like some advanced Java from those books and it's, it was just so presentable. And I feel like we don't like, we don't do textbooks much anymore in the first place. And when we do like, I don't know, I feel like we've erred on too much of the side of like text informational and less on the the fun sort of aspect of presenting some of this content. Yeah. The O'Reilly books as detailed as they can get are usually a little bit dry and it's it's very <laughs> yeah. nice to see little cartoons of people picking stuff up and holding pies and and connecting things and diagrams and all that stuff. So, yeah, I uh, I agree with you. We need to bring the fun back to technical <laughs> stuff. Having written a couple of those, they do actually they do have a very strong tone, and the editors will enforce that on you if you don't like. If you, my my tone is much more jovial and fun and kind of approachable. So when I write books for myself, they're they're very that. Uh, whereas, you know, you get the O'Reilly thing and they're like, oh, no, you know, this is, this is a bit more of a textual reference kind of thing. But they did have that headfirst series and it, and it is very good. If they had a headfirst ML, I'd be all over that right now. For yeah. sure. Yep. All right. Well, my pick for this week is virtualcoffee.io. It's a kind of get together for folks in tech. It's really good. They're very strong in terms of keeping it a safe space and making sure that there's a, a large diversity of folks in the chat. And the one that I went to, we talked a lot about uh, work-life balance and, and getting burnt out and how to deal with that. And I thought that that was really cool. And it was interesting because the, the topic kind of just came out of nowhere. And it's like the thing that was foremost in people's minds. I think the pandemic and being inside all the time has really kind of brought to the fore all these issues of like burnout and the rest of it. You know, how do we manage that? So very interesting. And it's great just to be able to talk to other people and network. So what we talked about before about self-promotion, you know, find these kind of ways that you can get your name out there and say, you know, hey, I, I'm in the community looking around for work or I, this is what I've been doing lately and get, get your name out there. All right. Well, this has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to React Roundup and see you next week. Bye, everybody. See you then. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.